I wonder if we shouldn't clear the air. Yeah? Yeah. I'm sure. I think that you can be a very selfish person, and I think you find it very hard to think about me. Why? And fuck? I think you shouldn't have even married me, actually. What the fuck? Yeah. What the actual fuck? You supposed to be my lowest fucking ebb. My dad was dying. What was I supposed to say? Perhaps no. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, you really kept me safe while you ran off to fuck the phone book. Oh, you were only with me to get to power. Well, you got it now, Tom. You've got it. I'm with you because I love you. Bullshit. You want to you wanna actually clear the air? Fine. You betrayed me. You were going to see me get sent to fucking prison. Shiv. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we'll be breaking down the seventh episode of season four, the final season of Succession, an episode called, oh, where, what is it called? Tailgate Party. Right. It was on the tip of my tongue, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah, I have my notes right here in front of me. I don't know why I didn't look at them. <laughs> anyway, Tailgate Party. <laughs> Before that, I don't want to promise this because it's probably going to be a lot of episodes this week, but I don't want to call out a specific number depending on what I can actually achieve. I might be changing the format of the show just temporarily, although there'll be an announcement at the beginning of June. We'll probably be going to one episode a week, Sona and I exclusively discussing shows, but there might be other ways where you can catch other shorter content, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, that I'll be publishing uh, and maybe a preview of that this week, although it probably won't all be TV related, but there are just so many shows that I'm trying to catch up on. I'm watching Barry, of course, also in its final season. The Big Door Prize is about to wrap up, and I'll probably have an episode where, a quick episode where I kind of catch everybody up on what's happened on that season. I have very negative thoughts about what's happening on the Ted Lasso show, which is also <laughs> about to wrap up completely outside the scope of this conversation. And they're just a couple of weeks away from wrapping up that whole show as well. So anyway, there's so much happening. Oh, and I have a recommendation for you, Sona, which I will also be reviewing later this week in a short separate episode, like I mentioned. But I do think that you might be interested in this. Have you heard of a show that's coming to Hulu called Class of 09? So, Sona, you th at least two genres, if not three, that you might be interested in here, all mish mashed together in this show, which premieres on Tuesday, I believe. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta, who just got an Academy Award nomination last year, truly one of the best actors of his generation, along with Kate Mara and a bunch of other recognizable TV stars, mostly TV stars, but definitely headlined by Kate Mara and Brian Tyree Henry. This show is about a class that graduates from the FBI in 2009, as you would expect. It takes place in three time periods. So we're in 2009, we're in the present tense, where they are working in the FBI, and we're in the near future, about 10 years out from where we are now. First of all, I love this idea. We've talked about it before. I love narrative where you move between different time periods and you kind of see what people did in the past and the consequences in the future, et cetera. It's also a mystery that rolls out over the course of multiple years, another thing you might be interested in. But what you may be most interested in is the main curiosity of the showrunner is how AI, which is already being baked into the ju judicial process, is going to impact the way we do policing in the future. So it takes that as a starting point where in the present tense, they're just starting to integrate AI into the uh, their processes. And you see speculation 10 years out, what does that look like in the future as well? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's these three things, these people who know each other for decades, how a crime they're investigating in the past impacts their future. And then of course, how the judicial system itself is impacted by technological changes. So I think that 
is three things, at least three things that I'm very interested in, and maybe something you'll be interested in as well. Okay. So I had not heard of this show, but it does sound interesting. Yes. And the sci-fi thing though is a little off-putting to me. I was going to say it's a a little bit sci-fi, although they shot this thing probably, you know, a year, year and a half ago. And apparently with all of the AI advances recently, people are who've seen the show are like saying like, wow, this thing was like predicting the future. Like it seems like it's a very intelligent way of seeing how this will probably actually play out as opposed to rocket ships and stuff, which is probably a turnoff for you. It's more about, you know, (laughs) speculating on the risks of, you know, outsourcing. I mean, this is something we're all thinking about now, outsourcing creativity, decision-making skill to technology, which may actually be better at it than we are. Right. So, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. one way or the other, what are the risks uh, and rewards of that? So I think that for me, that's a, a true fascination, but it may be interesting for you, especially because it is going to talk about how we prosecute crimes, how we investigate crimes, mm-hmm. and how we're going to more and more so just to talk about the how fraught this could possibly be. Someone was arrested exclusively based on the fact they matched a photograph. They went all the way to court, by the way. <laughs> and the whole entire time, this guy who was an African-American person, by the way, and these photographs are not very well trained at that, And he sat in front of detectives and he sat in front of prosecutors. And obviously to anyone with eyes, the picture did not match him at all. And it went all the way to court. And then they basically put up the photograph in front of a jury. And the jury's like, that's not the same guy. (laughs) But (laughs) the process is just so expected that this is going to be the way it's going to go that no one ever questioned like, hey, maybe we should actually look at the photograph and look at this guy's (laughs) face and see if they match. And they did not. And uh, now they're sued for millions of dollars. And there's going to be more and more complexity to this as time goes by, obviously. Anyway, so I'll be watching that. I think there's two episodes premiering this week, and then it goes week to week. And uh, But I will not be reviewing it in our conversations. But if you do decide to watch Sona, uh, we can maybe pick it up in some future episode. Sounds good. Okay. As I'm watching, I'm taking notes. And I was taking many, many, many notes. The show has gotten so dense here as the show gets towards the end. And then my whole (laughs) note-taking attempt got thrown in the garbage because of that sequence on the patio between Amazing. Incredible. Like a little, what's a, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in five minutes on the the patio? (laughs) But first of all, I just have to say, and I'm sure we'll return to this, but I just want to give you credit. You totally (laughs) called it that Connor was going to have some votes (laughs) that end up being important. For Mencken, and there was going to be an issue with that. So once again, I have lost track of how many times you have (laughs) predicted the plot of something we have watched. So that was one thing I wanted to say. And then the second, and then we can actually start talking, was, oh my gosh, do I feel like an idiot to say that I said last week, I think Shiv and Tom could get a happily ever after. (laughs) Right. Oh, I think everybody felt that way, though. I do listen to some of these other podcasts after the fact, after we record. There was a lot of talk on the internet going like, these are going to be the guys. This is succession. They're the ones who are going to win. And I'm like, boy, did everybody read that? Yikes. (laughs) Goes back to, you know, the continuing theme that we have in so many of our conversations of like, you can only push this stuff down for so long before it's going to be in your face one way or the other. And It all came to a head, but okay. I just wanted to get those introductory comments on the record. Now you go ahead. (laughs) Sure. I want to spend more time on that patio conversation. So maybe I'll walk through the plot pretty quickly. And uh, although whenever I say that, it never really goes that fast, but I'll try to get through (laughs) it as briskly as possible because so much of these things are going to kind of coalesce in that meeting. 
Okay, so let's kick it off. We start off very promisingly. Tom and Shiv are back together. Did their hosting the night? We already knew this. They were going to be hosting the tailgate party that night. Apparently, this was for every election night. Logan would throw a party normally, but I guess they've picked it up. They had already planned to host it even before Logan's passing. He brings him some hot new polling. He's chanting Rasmussen, Rasmussen. I'm not sure why, but Rasmussen is notorious <laughs> right leaning polling. Uh, if that's what they're saying, that the Rasmussen polling is showing that Jimenez, Jimenez is up by four, then that would be really problematic for the Republican mm -hmm. candidate because, mm -hmm. you know, like Rasmussen had Trump like tied to win uh, in the last election. And then, of course, he ended up uh, losing by four or five percentage points. So it really, really wasn't very close. So if that is the Rasmussen polling, then that would be very, very bad for, for him. There's about a four point lead for Jim, uh, Jimenez. As Tom is heading out to work, he gives her a present, gives her a present, which is this um, scorpion <laughs> encased in... What, what was this about? I mean, I guess like there's that whole Aesop's fable about the scorpion <laughs> killing the frog when it's trying to cross the river. I mean, is that what he's referencing? I mean, he's calling her a scorpion, that's for sure. But it's in a fun way, in a fun way, right, Sona? I think this is kind of where we end up on that terrace. They have totally blurred the line between poking fun and like their deep-seated resentments. <laughs> and, and I think they're just bleeding into each other such that, you know, you can always excuse something by saying it was just a joke, but there's right. so much underlying, there's so much baggage between them at this point that very little is just a joke. We're one episode after them playing Bitey. So this is kind of in mm -hmm. that tone, although maybe a little too on the nose, maybe a little too. I mean, I don't know how to read this gift in a positive way at all, to be honest with you. But then you see though, I mean, they're, apparently their chemistry is great. They're up all yeah. night, right? So yeah, somehow absolutely. he still doesn't know she's pregnant. That's a whole other thing. But, <laughs> exactly, yes. you know, so that's what kind of was strange to me, but I guess it is in keeping with their whole relationship to have these kinds of contradictions. Yeah. And it goes back to that idea, like you mentioned, that it is this kind of schoolyard pranking, but I feel like there is all this animosity and they have never addressed it with each other, especially her. And maybe this is, comes back to her relationship with her brothers as well and how they used to play or not so much play, but she had to pretend she wasn't being hurt by this play. This roughhousing emotionally as well, she has to pretend to be tougher than everybody else. And, you know, eventually she gets a scorpion gift, <laughs> but, and I don't think she really appreciates it. <laughs> the bigger question there though, which is curious is that, you know, they were just playing Bitey the night before. This could be potentially considered an extension of that. And I guess in a dark way, playful, but he had to have ordered this thing earlier. Like how long has he been sitting on this thing? <laughs> how fast can you get a scorpion encased in Lucite? I mean, if you've got that kind of money, anything is possible. But... <laughs> true, true. <laughs> he overnighted um... it. I mean, this is like, is this their version of the blood bricks that Matson was sending? <laughs> in a way, in a way. <laughs> you know, I'm, it's all, rich people send strange mementos, I guess <laughs> is my takeaway here. <laughs> and that will come full circle when we get back to that scene on the balcony towards the end. Speaking of Matson, he does text her in the way, on the way and wants to get some kind of inside scoop, the living plus, as we expected anyway, that maybe this actually makes sense to some extent, living plus upon any kind of review is going to fall apart, but they don't care. They simply want to pull off multiple stunts. This is very Elon Musky on their part, by the way, to just kind of pull off multiple stunts over a short period of time to just keep 
the stock price goosed, which makes it unpurchasable by Matson because he just doesn't have the cash to buy it. Mm -hmm. And he kind of senses this and he goes, well, that's, you know, I don't, what else are they cooking up so I can be ahead of it in case I get another bump on the stock price? She goes, I don't know. I don't have any inside information, but are you planning on coming to the party? He says that he is not interested in attending, what did he call this? Putrid AOL era stuffed mushroom fuckfest. <laughs> I love stuffed mushrooms. That would have me too. there alone. <laughs> I do too. Since he said stuffed mushrooms, I was like, mm, stuffed mushrooms. <laughs> I'm definitely going to that party. I don't care. Sign what me up. AOL era or not. <laughs> I'm AOL era. Hey, I'm fine with that. That's right. I had no funeral question mark, but we're definitely going to have a funeral. Yeah. I mean, this really amplifies how little time has passed yes, since yep. Logan's death, which honestly, I don't know how this crew isn't a bunch of zombies considering <laughs> yes. all well, the Tom travel is. they've been doing and all that. <laughs> Tom is so around. tired. <laughs> yes. Eventually, Shiv says, besides, yeah, I do like the scorpion. Not sure how to read any of that. She does seem to actually come around to it after, I guess, parsing it up a few different ways. But once again, that remains to be seen if this is all a performance on her part, always, basically. Could be a cute gift if someone is a Scorpio. Yes, true. Maybe, maybe Shiv's a Scorpio. I mean, they didn't yeah. spell that out, but... <laughs> I think she would have been so shocked by it if there was some <laughs> any association Fair. with it. <laughs> Sure. She's like, but I'm a Pisces. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Should have got me a crab or something. Oh, Pisces, no. Fish. Those are fish, right? <laughs> yeah. Pisces is fish. Cancer is crab. All right. Next scene. Kendall meets up with Rava. Where is this? Upper East Side, maybe? Um, On It must be. I would have to conclude that it is, but I don't know. I didn't recognize the... I mean, I, I recognize that coffee chain that they were in front of, but I don't know mm -hmm. all its locations. This appears to be, I guess, like just a spot where they meet up anonymously. He just wears a baseball yeah. cap, which was what he always wears. And somehow he's incognito. I'm not sure how that works. Anyway, she has some news. Sophie, who's South Asian, they adopted her. The news is the children still exist because. <laughs> yes, but they can't have them <laughs> on the show. Her much. People have been mocking this. They, they cannot have Iverson, who's going to be six foot four, come back on the show. Supposed to be six months after he had already grown a foot. Like it's 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 not going to work. And uh, Sophie, Sophie, their their daughter has got to be like ten now or something. Like she's supposed to be like six. Like this is not going to work. It's not going to work. No. Okay. Fair point. Maybe CGI them down, like their faces onto like kids' bodies or something. <laughs> so it turned out she was pushed by someone in the streets. Person, the person, I guess it was a woman. Actually, sounds like she was wearing a Ravenhead shirt. Ravenhead, of course, is like the Hannity analogy here on the show. Or maybe more so, even more so before he got kicked out, which is funny that this is all happening at the same time. The Tucker Carlson thing, which is, you know, he's been leaning more into that anti-immigration, anti-minority mindset on the show. The kids at school supporting her have set up an anti-ATN group, which is supportive of her. But then simultaneously, of course, she has complicated feelings. That's the company that her dad is now the CEO of. So especially after speaking badly of that company and now his dad suddenly running it like full steam ahead when they have a fascist coming into office potentially. And then this scene goes so badly. He starts saying to her, where were you? Why was she on the street? Why was she on the street? <laughs> like we were, we were in front of the museum. Like where, where is she supposed to be? I understand they probably do have a car that takes them a lot of places, but the nature of city living is that you will be on the sidewalk at some point. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, you get, even rich people have to, unfortunately, <laughs> in New York City. That's kind of one of the beautiful things about New York, by the way. Like in Los Angeles, I think that's the reason that there's this culture of like celebrity sighting is that, you know, they go to their incredibly rich street where really everybody there is a millionaire or paparazzi. And then you have the really high end restaurants and you drive everywhere and you're out at Malibu and like you're separated. You're these, you're fully mm -hmm. segregated from one part of Los Angeles to another. In New York City, if you want to go to a happening bar, you're on the street with homeless people. That's yep. just how it is. <laughs> and by the way, that just means that celebrities are out on the street all the time. This is why people don't bother them. It's just like very commonplace to see yes. a celebrity walking down the street with their kid in a stroller or something. It just happens, which is kind of the beauty of New York, by the way. I agree. Kendall is blaming his wife for this. Rava starts to blow up. You need to make a decision so, yeah, if you're going to call your daughter. I was raising our daughter while you were fucking running oh, a yeah. racist yeah, news yeah, yeah, organization. Yeah, yeah. Great. Fuck you. Come oh, on. Fuck me. Come on. Fucking dare you interrogate me. Obviously, and I feel I bad. Obviously, I will do anything to protect okay, her. You know anything. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm going to just... And uh, we'll cope. And I don't know, just maybe call your fucking daughter. Well, obviously, Jesus, Rava, Jesus, what kind of parent do you think I am? You know, you have no idea the things I'm doing, the things I'm working on. Six continents, okay? I'm breaking my back, and it's all for them, <laughs> okay? To make the world safe. I'm saving the world, traveling six continents. I mean, shades of Walter White, too, with like, I'm yes. doing this for our, for for our family, you right. know? <laughs> Also shades, by the way, of Kendall supposedly differentiating himself from his dad. Remember that episode in season one, maybe, or season two, when they were out in that compound? It might have even been Connor's compound. I haven't watched season one in such a long time, but they were out in at a compound. They had like a therapist, a family therapist show up. Yes. And Logan said the same thing, right? All the sacrifices, the fact he was alienated from his kids, the fact he was so tough on his kids, he's doing it all for them, all for them. <laughs> and this is usually what happens, like the people who are... Oftentimes, the ones who are the most striving and the most selfish in many ways have to rationalize that they're not spending time with right. their families and their loved ones. So they're like, hey, I'm doing it for you. This is all for you. I'm I'm suffering right now. It's like, sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> You'll love every minute of it. I mean, he's saying I'm trying to make money so that she can live in this luxury, yada, yada, yada. That's one thing. But to say he's saving the world, making it safe. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> even even uh, Logan would not say that he was saving the world. <laughs> I do love when we get all the siblings together and we get them multiple times here in this episode, but they get together. It turns out all having brunch together where nobody eats <laughs> and the uh, Roman right? gets blown off when he tries to get a coffee. That's all those pastries on the table. Yeah. Is there a theme of Roman not being able to get a drink when he wants? He was complaining that <laughs> at Shiv's wedding, he couldn't get a drink. Right, because because of the... <laughs> yeah. Because of the awful thing that happened. The waiter. When Kendall arrives, Shiv calls him the waste our Jesus mm -hmm. promising everybody eternal life. <laughs> Connor's about 5% in Alaska. This is kind of indicative of something. Let's say that Alaska is one of the states that Mencken needs. If you're a Republican and can't win Alaska, you're probably not going to mm -hmm. win the election. <laughs> Alaska's only been going Republican by three to five points recently. So it's not like a huge landslide, but like you got to get Alaska. Like you're not going to win the mm -hmm. election without Alaska. They decide they want to have a tight 90 at Logan's funeral and they're figuring out who, who should be the person who speaks. They don't have time for everybody to talk. Who should take that? And really, no one steps up by the end of the episode. Roman is the one who decides to take that. We got to talk about Roman's trajectory in this episode. I am honestly thinking if they're seeding anything here, what is he going to say? <laughs> like, I think he's going to have a nervous breakdown at the funeral, and it's going to be a, a disaster. That's what I think. Of the choices, he actually should have been the last option. Yes. 
I do like the fact when Kendall goes, if no one else wants to do it, I'll do it. And Roman chides him by saying, uh, are you going to go with your classic malignant influence material? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He can't stop himself. (laughs) Roman and Kendall leave at the same time. At this moment, they're assuming Jimenez is going to win. And then their plan at this point is to get everybody concerned with this merger with Gojo. (laughs) They throw everybody out there. They EU (laughs) any kind of regulatory body Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. throw at this deal as a possible sabotage. They want Nate to come to the tailgate. This was that hookup she had uh, who worked on Gills in campaign with Shiv as well at the time. Mm -hmm. She's not happy about this, of course. She's trying to patch things up with Tom. She knows it's going to be bad. So two things here. Shiv is troubled by this interaction. The first thing she does is she calls Matson and tells him that they're going regulatory mm-hmm. and you have to come to the party tonight because everybody who they're going to try to schmooze will be there and you're going to have to do some like offensive against it. The second thing is rather than telling Tom, by the way, Nate's going to be at the party, you should know. Instead, she makes like a sexy text to him to kind of win him over and keep him happy. Indicative of their relationship, I think. They never talk about the thing they should talk about. <laughs> they mm-hmm. do all these performance around it. It's It's just bizarre. Maybe I saw Shiv as trying to play both sides to the extent she could up until this episode. Right. But I mean, they make it really clear and it's explicitly said in this episode that she is choosing to back Matson and screw her siblings over, which I think was a little bit more of a gray area until this one. As she's sending that sexy text, Tom receives it and he's in this room firing everybody via Zoom. Oh my gosh. But he doesn't even do the firing. Speaking to once again, if you want to see someone's true nature, here's Tom who oftentimes can draw sympathy from us. He chokes up on the video call. This is a very hard day for me. Then gets Greg to do the firing mm-hmm. while he's like trying to break Greg during the fire. Like this is like mm-hmm. Tom at his worst, really. It's like the worst scene mm-hmm. of Tom this whole year, which is saying a lot. I like Shiv calling her brothers dumb and dumber, <laughs> trying to blow up the deal. We get to the party. Tom is very, very tired and <laughs> mentions it many, many times and knows, by the way, not only fatigued by all the travel and all the emotional BS that's going on and being up all night having sex with his wife again. But on top of all of that, he knows he's got to have a very, very long day the next day at ATN because the election is the next day. Mm-hmm. Maybe should have thought better whether to host this party or not. So just, just say it under any circumstances. First of all, I thought Greg's suggestion to have a coffee was a perfectly good one. Um, the party's starting whether you like it or not. So you got to do something to get through it. Also, and maybe this is the cynical part of me, up until this election day, which I understand is a huge day, but um, I don't think any of these people are so important that they couldn't sneak in a two or three hour nap at some point. I understand their titles are important and they are ridiculously wealthy, but that is why. You can say, I need to be left alone for two hours and go have a disco nap. Maybe this is something about being a parent that comes into play, right? But you see that opportunity for sleep and you seize it. There are times that I send my kid up to my mom's place and literally he is out the door and I am in the bed because I know (laughs) what the rest of my day holds. And if I don't fall asleep in the next 15 minutes, it's all going to hell. All he needs is is a power nap. When Greg is doing the firing, he could literally go to his office close the door, put a half hour on his calendar and just take a nap, just lay down and take a nap on the sofa. 
Just seems like really poor planning to me. I think the tiredness is beyond just physical tiredness at this point. But we see that by the end, yes. Speaking of how he probably can't sleep even during his party, he is very stressed out about trying to schmooze Matson to protect his position. I like the conversation he has with Greg saying that he should try to do the same. And Greg says that uh, he's gotten m multiple indications from Matson <laughs> that he hates him. He says he'd love to feather that bed, but instead he has to be team Kenro because it's the only option he has. Greg reading the room well for once. He is that rat that is trying to survive grabbing from one piece of driftwood mm -hmm. to the next. Yeah, yeah. So I think true. that he is adept at that, which is why I thought it was so funny earlier when he was calling Carrie a rat. When I was like, uh, <laughs> kettle to pot. Yeah. Mencken is called Roman, by the way. And like you mentioned earlier, he needs those extra percents. Can he get Connor to drop out? I mean, this is really too late. As they already mentioned, he's already on the ballot. You can't remove someone's mm -hmm. name from the ballot with a day to go. Even if you announced it, how many people who have voted or voted early? I mean, a lot of people vote early now. I mean, is this really going to sway things? But I guess he's desperate. If he makes some crazy offer and he doesn't win the election, then he doesn't have to comply with it anyway. So he, he it only matters if he wins, right? And he hasn't won yet. Good point. I do want to get your read on one part of this interaction. Roman obviously committed to the Mencken thing. I think he's way more into the Mencken thing than he's letting on. I like Kendall, who obviously this whole thing just happened with his adopted daughter. And he says, fuck that guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which then Roman goes, well, yeah, but wouldn't you want to be close to him just in case he wins? And all of a sudden, Kendall's like, yeah, you're right. Let's go forward, <laughs> move forward with the plan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was like, such a quick reversal and like this whole conversation he had with Rava speaking to how little actually emotionally committed to his family. It's like that did not even delay his thinking for a, a second. Mm -hmm. And I think it, I think that is important that, that how quickly he switches here in this scene. Kendall's plan is that he's going to go and schmooze the libtards <laughs> and he sends Roman to go talk to the Nazis, as he calls them. Yep. Nate and Tom have an uncomfortable confrontation. By the way, I forgot to mention, but Shiv does eventually tell Tom like minutes before Nate arrives that he's going to be there. So it doesn't take it very well, although he just kind of internalizes that. And then you see as soon as Nate arrives, he has this kind of competitiveness. Nate actually does seem to just want to not cause a scene at this moment. Tom is still trying to <laughs> get him or try to get anybody to drink his terrible Ugh, I love the call back to the biodynamic wine. <laughs> yes. And that little snipe they had with each other, right? About drinking his wine. It's supposed and to he, be fizzy. <laughs> right. I like that when he's talking to the servers. But he does finally admit on that balcony. We'll get to that balcony. See, we got to talk about that. That's like 10 minutes of the show. <laughs> but um, he does finally admit that that is terrible wine. <laughs> Maybe the first time he's ever admitted it. Okay. Now, a great, great scene. Still trying to get... Connor on board. Connor wants some kind of ambassadorship. They offer, uh, how about Mogadishu? <laughs> Connor thinks that's a little too car bomby for him. <laughs> and he's like, how about the ambassadorship to uh to the UN? <laughs> a little okay. shooting a little too high. But this does come back full circle because he gets another counter offer. What's the top option? Okay. Let me let me have a little look. I would love to get to Europe. Can I creep up through the underbelly? Come up through the Balkans? couple of senior departures, Berlin by Christmas. They may be willing to talk Slovenia or Slovakia. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, I think I'm a no on the slows. What about South Korea? Hmm? South Korea, top 10 GDP, major geopolitical player. I feel like that would be tough. North Korea. 
Easy, my liege. You don't know. Nobody knows. That's the point. I could open it up like Nixon did China. Khan, they're not going to put you anywhere with nukes. Well, that's insulting. I don't think I want to go anywhere that doesn't have nukes. All right. Well, how do you like Oman? Oman? Yeah. Poor man Saudi Arabia or rich man Yemen? Hmm. I have to check. See what my woman thinks about Oman. <laughs> nice. Yep. Good. All right. Good. I don't know if it was before this or after this, but around this time, there's a moment of silence for the dearly departed Logan Roy. And this is when Matson oh shows up in his gold lemonade <laughs> jacket. <laughs> and he's like shushing himself like, ooh, did I walk in on something? Oh, like, so just like yikes. the perfect moment to get off on the wrong foot here with Kendall, not necessarily with the rest mm-hmm. of the Lucas immediately goes to Shiv. Shiv starts showing him around. Shiv is, like you said before, playing both sides. She's like, I'm going to stay close to him. They even, even Kendall actually tells her, stay close to him. He, mm-hmm. he seems to like you. It's later in the party when he starts to think like, hmm, <laughs> Greg, go intervene because something's going on. Right. Over there. Lucas is talking to Nate. There might be some questions about whether this is a good merger or not from the investors, but of course, from the regulators as well. They do have concerns that you're giving all this data, and there's a lot of data privacy concerns here across the board, by the way, on the right and the left. And that tech is really consuming too much of our data and without any kind of transparency and says, well, we're going to be handing a lot of different data channels to you and invasion of privacy, yada, yada, yada. Lucas counter argues that, well, someone's got to end up with the business. And are you going to give it to those two fail sons? <laughs> like calls them <laughs> Good point. Good point. And Nate takes this and or starts to mingle. This is where Nate seemed to be pretty nice with Tom, but is a little mean going like, well, what do you expect at the top of ATN? What's going to happen there? I don't know if he's intentionally trying to throw Tom under the bus, but it does get Matson to say, oh, big changes there, big changes. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, this is something that becomes trigger later on as all this mm-hmm. basically gossip starts to spread around about his departure. And Tom starts hearing it secondhand as he's trying to save his job. N- not good news for him. Nate runs into Kendall. And a good reminder here that, I mean, they've been friends since high school, since college. I mean, they definitely since college, right? Because they hung out and they went to school together. Kendall's trying to use this and he's saying, hey, you know, we could be good to you. Our news coverage will be nice to you for the first 100 days. We could really grease the wheels or we can make it bad for you if you win. All you got to do is like, you know, throw an investigation at Gojo. Nate gets really uncomfortable about this. <laughs> I like his comment here that he says, mm-hmm. man, I forgot how eager you were to get laid at a party. <laughs> <laughs> and Kendall's just like, yeah, look at the get laid. He like looks so awkward there, like trying to respond to that because he's been so called out at that moment. And he says, look, I don't know what you think is going on here, but I'm not Gil and you're not your dad. And I don't mean that in an offensive way. And I am pretty sure Kendall has heard that he's not like his dad and he never takes that the right way, ever. I think he clearly meant it as a compliment in this way. I mean, maybe a little bit backhanded of like, you can't do what he did, but I think all around it was meant with better intentions than usually when people would say that to him. I think he's trying to tell him, let's not play that game. Yeah. That's not what Kendall wants to hear. He's like, that's what my dad would have done. I got to do what my dad would have done. So then we see Shiv and Matson, And before we find out what's happening in India with uh, the Matson numbers, the <laughs> numbers, we have Shiv and Matson in the coat room. And uh, man, they were great again together. I mean, these two, whenever they're on screen together, they get along great. Like this is a power couple, it feels like. He's having so much fun with her. They are clearly having a ton of fun together. Yeah. The performers too. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. But I do feel like, and maybe we've seen it before, but I think not recently. 
did you notice there was like a a difference in Matson's character this yes, week absolutely. where yes. like less charming, less charismatic, a little more nerdy, geeky, dorky kind of thing. Well, I think there's two aspects to him. Once again, there's the Elon Musk analogy here where Elon Musk is also the person who goes and like will give anybody an interview who wants to interview him, will say very intelligent things about the future of work and AI and sound like he knows what he's talking about and then makes a racist tweet just to get a, a laugh from a 14-year-old. Mm -hmm. And it's like his humor is like a 13-year-old's humor. And I think we see that explicitly in the course of this show. He shows up in like a gold lame jacket with a muscle t-shirt underneath. He's supposed to be going there to make his best impression. And this is what he does. All of it is very juvenile. But once again, that is part of his brand, being disruptive in more ways than one. We've talked a bunch about his stature. In my view, a very pronounced stooping over of his head um, in this episode. And I thought maybe to try and get on people's level because he's so much taller than everybody else, perhaps. But like it definitely made him seem less confident than he usually seems. I mean, I think intentionally he says it here, right? He says that when he was going to show up there, he was really intimidated. So he was maybe this awkwardness, this childishness. This is not the kind of situation he likes to be in. He obviously orchestrated this entire you know, rooftop scenario, and he's very much on home base. He's surrounded by people who speak his own language, totally in control in that earlier instance. And I think from a, we, we talked about this from a production standpoint as well, that in those scenes, he never stood like next to Greg. So you could see that he was shorter than Greg. He had made that Viking movie earlier, the Northman last year. And it's almost like he stayed in shape for this mm -hmm, and he just mm -hmm. seems so much more physically imposing. And here he is in this baggy jacket, hunched over, like you mentioned, maybe hunching over because everybody else is a foot shorter than him. But we do see him next to Tom and next to Greg, and he's shorter than Greg, and he's maybe shorter than Tom, right? So it, it just shows him in a very different light, like you mentioned. And he doesn't control the narrative, he doesn't control the circumstance that he's in at all. And I think that is part of what you're feeling there. And mm. I think they're showing it, right? He's in New York City, he's not in his backyard at all. Right. I do love this though, where he's uh, you know rubbing his hands together. He says a couple mm -hmm. of interesting things here, I think. One is that I was nervous to talk to these people. I thought they were going to be very complicated people, but they're not. It's just money and gossip. That's all you need. I love Shiv's reaction. It's like she's surprised by the revelation he's making. She goes, yeah, money and gossip. That's everything. She says, <laughs> I love that response. That's everything. Uh, because I mean, I guess that is that whole world, right? That's basically yeah. what it is. It's very if true. You get money, you walk in the door. If you have gossip, you mm -hmm. are you have a commodity that you can trade with somebody else. That's it. That's all you Absolutely. Got. And he goes, okay, take me down to the Paradise City. <laughs> a little <laughs> GNR reference there. But then I love her response is, what have you done for me lately? A little Janet Jackson right back mm -hmm. in your face there. <laughs> and she asks for the big job. She's asking to be like the CFO maybe or something like that. And he's like, mm, oh yeah, let me think about that. I need about five. And she goes, no, I'm not going to give you time to think about it. But he does back away from that, which does make me wonder, is he really taking her seriously or is he just using her? And I think maybe she's starting to wobble mm -hmm. here. She really felt like she had an in with him. They had good chemistry. He was going to rely on her. He was relying on her, but this may be purely transactional in his mind, right? And she's thinking about this the right way that, you know, if she's going to sell out her family, it better be worth it. Absolutely. She says that, you know, all he has to do is schmooze the right people, don't make a fool of himself. Don't be like, not like he did on the Twitter or whatever. And his thumbnail description of that is don't <laughs> run around screaming, people are data. It's sticking my dick in the guac. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
And she's like, yes, in a nutshell. <laughs> Sums it up. <laughs> she does compliment him and saying like, you know, you did do a good job out there. And she like pats him on the back and says, you're like some self-learning AI. <laughs> <laughs> Learning as you go. Now, this is when Kendall starts to worry. They're a little too buddy-buddy. Greg needs to intervene and says, do whatever you can. Send them in the direction of any fissile material, which is radioactive. But he's talking about any kind of drugs. Any drugs you can find, send them in that direction. See if you can get Hysterical. them. Nate has left after the conversation with Kendall, uncomfortable with that whole entire confrontation. And then Roman gets a call. Whoever this person who's doing the dirt digging is has discovered the story, the blocks of blood and hair as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't know about the hair necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So much needed DNA. To add the hair. So much DNA. <laughs> Connor has made the pitch to Willa about going to Oman. There's oh my some gosh. attractive things about that. And she goes, I don't know, you know, that the, the government is so controlling <laughs> that you're only going to be like on the ground, basically, when you walk from the airplane. Like once you're in the bubble, you have diplomatic plates and you're completely pr protected. You could Park run on the sidewalk. <laughs> you could drive on the on the sidewalk if you wanted to. And she says that running people over <laughs> is not a selling point. <laughs> the, the one rational person on the show at this moment. Yes. Is, mm -hmm. Okay, there's this whole sequence where Ebba is there, Greg is there, Matson is there. And this is really an interesting scene, probably not important in any way. I love getting all these people in the same room, mixing them up in different ways reveals different parts about them. You have Greg, who's been sent to infiltrate the Matson thing. Matson's number one guy, I forget his name now, but he's great in these sequences. Hates Greg, hates him, calls him a dingleberry, mm -hmm. <laughs> a hanger on and a dingleberry. Can't stand him. Greg, though, still gets in there. Madsen starts asking him questions. He's like saying, oh, that's what I've been doing. I've been firing people, like 100 people at a time. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, how does that make you feel? Must be like very, you know, draining on you. And he says, no, you know, I kind of like it. He goes, I'm the right man for the job. You know, uh, I look like I care, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I don't. Lucas just goes, oh, so you're a bad person. And he goes, no, I'm not a bad person, which I think says so much about Greg, but about these people where they're like, yeah, I'm doing my job, which is destroying people's lives. Oh, so you're a bad person. He's like, no, no, I'm just doing my job, mm -hmm. which I think is a lot of rationalization for a lot of bad people, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. He says, I'll fire Ebba as a joke. And Matson jumps in on this. This pisses Ebba off. Matson has been antagonizing Ebba this entire time, makes fun of her having social anxiety, even though she's like the comms person, which by the way, terrible job if that's your, the case. I mean, the whole thing was crazy. And by the end, I was convinced that everyone in Matson's crew has some sort of social anxiety <laughs> because none of this was like normal, how they were interacting with anybody. It was a bunch of people who don't know how to play with others. Just to lean into the Elon Musk analogy yet again, Musk himself, I don't know if this is diagnosed or self-diagnosed, he says he has Asperger's. Right, so right. It feels like everybody in this guy's orbit may have Asperger's. <laughs> yeah, and then it's like you have no barometer of what normal is because everybody <laughs> around you doesn't know how to interact with anybody else. Exactly. <laughs> So Ebba storms off. They're all yummy, yelling, Ebba, Ebba. Greg puts his hands to his mouth and yelling out Ebba to kind of jump in. This is what he does. He's such a toady. But he's looking side-eyed at the guys to be like, oh, am I winning them over? He's mm -hmm. like so desperate mm -hmm. to get a foothold here. It's He's such a pathetic character. <laughs> Just <to> exemplified <laughs> yet again, yet again. Although I love him still, by the way. <laughs> We've all, especially at that time in our lives, have been out of our depth, just trying to get a foothold in our careers or whatever. We've all been there where Greg is. 
not firing 100 people a day, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> when Ebba storms off, this is where the brothers have been watching and they swoop in. They're so compassionate. Oh, Ebba, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. Is this about, you know, the blood? And then she really pretty much just says India. And I guess they start asking questions and little by little, it all comes out. It really doesn't all fully come out, by the way. They just kind of mention the word India. And that's kind of how they finally get under Lucas's skin. But she I mean, I liked that- Roman's reaction of, of course, I know what you're talking about. But if I didn't know what yes, you're talking about, what would you be talking about? <laughs> she does say that she's not going to say what it is. She just says India and February, I guess it's like when these mm-hmm. numbers will be made public. They suss out that there's something wonky about the numbers of subscribers in India for his platform. Eventually, through the grapevine, gets back to Shiv pretty quickly. Shiv starts to worry, right? She's put all her eggs in this basket. She confronts Matson back in the coat room again. He's hunched over, like you mentioned. And very much, speaking of his demeanor here, this is a little kid who's been caught lying, right? Exactly. Yes. Just says, what's going on with the numbers? And he goes, oh, you mean India? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there you go. All the confirmation we need. And apparently this is big, a big part of their growth story and their current valuation at the level they are is the amount of growth they saw in India. I don't know if this is intentional or if it was literally just a stupid, because I've seen this happen before as well, just a really stupid accounting mistake where they say that, well, the Indian numbers are half <laughs> half of what they're supposed to be. They would make sense if there were two Indians. I love that. They would make sense if there were two Indias. I think later on, Shiva goes, let's go build another India. And he goes, yes. let's go build that. I like that. I like that idea. <laughs> sure. Another country with one and a half billion people. <laughs> And she goes, well, how's this going to work? Those numbers are going to come out. And he goes, well, if I make this deal soon, that's going to be everything everyone's going to be talking about. There'll be a lot of razzle-dazzle. And then the subscribers will come along with the merger. And then my numbers will make sense. Maybe. <laughs> Next quarter, maybe. <laughs> and Shiv is very disturbed by this whole interaction, obviously. So now she has to decide who she's going to bet on here. All right, we're getting close to the moment of truth on that balcony. But a couple really, really important scenes. Jerry runs into Roman. Before you yes. get there, yeah. mm-hmm. when Roman sees Frank, is it? And yes. he says, oh, Jerry came. And I myself have been wondering, is Jerry fired or is Jerry not fired? It hasn't been clear <laughs> to me. And so I'm trying to suss that out when Roman says to Frank, oh, Jerry came. This is great. And he says, she, no, she's incredibly angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's very angry. Exactly. Yeah, good thing to set that as context. He runs into her. He's very uncomfortable, as he always is, by the way, with any kind of actual human interaction. And he's trying to smooth things out with her. She says, I am done. I'm Mm -hmm. going to take my money. It's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And I have a narrative and I have a PR firm. Roman's shaking his head going like, good luck. You're not going to get that money. And she says, I am going to create a narrative and you're going to stipulate that for five years. The narrative will be exactly what I say. Every word that my PR firm says. And if you contradict it ever, she's like, I have like hundreds and hundreds of pictures of your genitalia that I will present to the media. We know it's true. Absolutely. And he is flummoxed by this, obviously, like she owned him right there. And this is something he cannot tolerate. And as if he can't just take the loss, he goes and he wanders over to Connor to try to get the win and starts to pressure him into saying, are you going to take the Oman deal or not? Are you going to do this Mm -hmm. for Mencken? Connor's still asking like, well, you know, are you going to sweeten the deal anymore? And Roman just says, why would he do anything? You're a loser. You're a joke. Everybody in this room knows you're a joke. But of course, 
Willa, as soon as this conversation begins, Will had brought up the fact that like my family is very uncomfortable with the Nazi you have running mm-hmm. as Republican candidate. So that's really where she's pushing, putting her thumb on the scale. You complimented me for coming up with that expectation that there would be some kind of sweet deal. And maybe that will still come in. Maybe he'll get a much, much sweeter deal potentially. Although once again, I don't think it's enough to swing the election one way or the other. So it might not be worth it. Right. Could be another shoe to drop next week, possibly. But I really feel at this moment, Connor's just like, you know what? I am walking out of this room with the one person who actually believes in me uh, Mm -hmm. and who doesn't think I'm a joke, if you honestly mean that everybody here thinks I'm a joke. And uh, screw you. (laughs) I'm out of here. And uh, he makes a really good point. You know, he spent hundreds of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. to get to this point. And he does matter for another minute. And he's supposed to just throw that all away just because what? Because Roman calls him a loser. I would walk out as well. This is terrible, by the way. Roman calls him his wife and does air quotes. <laughs> it's really, really not nice. Yeah, that was mean. And it really feels like, can they come back from this? Um, but I guess they've come back from worse, actually. To then, another just incredible scene. We have Matson sitting on the ledge now, much more comfortable now in the surroundings. And Matson is going, cool family, cool family, like mocking him. Roman goes, yeah, yeah, cool family. Go tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> And then he starts to belittle New York. Oh, yeah, you know, New York used to be the place to be. He calls it like Legos because like, you know, the architect, there's no kind of architectural consistency. He compares it to like new modern cities. And of course, this is new technology versus old media, right? Like exemplified from like a new city versus an old city in his thinking as well. And I like how he switches this around and says, nothing happens in New York unless it happens everywhere else first. (laughs) And uh, Kendall says, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Go put that on a cup. Coffee cup, yeah. (laughs) But it gets more antagonistic. And then Kendall just starts playing his hand, going like, oh, yeah, your numbers look good, huh? And uh, here they are, two bullshitters. Now we see that mm-hmm. these two people are very similar. We found out, by the way, from Ebba, that this is shades of Elon Musk once again, that he wasn't even a good coder. Musk notoriously is not known as a very good coder either, just more of a salesman. And mm-hmm. once again, here we have it again, two bullshitters recognizing each other. I like the fact that he says, oh, yeah, those living plus numbers, I love to see those get broken down. You know, like he's basically saying your estimates are mm-hmm. are bad. And uh, Kendall goes, oh, yeah, those are estimates, though. How about when you lie about your numbers, your actual numbers? <laughs> so they're calling each other out without actually calling each other out. And speaking of being like a little 13-year-old kid, he says, I've seen your numbers. Your, your numbers are gay. <laughs> <I know. laughs> like, what is he, 11 years old? Like, what is going on here? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, God. Kendall, to his credit, says that seems a little homophobic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is where things get so ugly that Lucas is basically saying to him, oh, you still want the deal, though, right? You still want the deal? And Kendall says, absolutely. Biggest overpay in Mm -hmm. history. So he's literally saying, our company's not worth what you're paying for it. Think about that one. He gives him a kiss, and they go their separate ways. Shiv tries to intervene here as well, which is part of the reason they kind of break it up finally. After this confrontation... Tom starts saying that he's really tired and he just has to go to bed. Shiv is telling him, like, you can't, you can't leave me out here to host this alone. This means that they wander out to have a conversation on the patio. And then things get really, really bad. You're pathetic. You're a masochist and you can't even take it. I think you are incapable of love. And I think you are maybe not a good person to have children. Well, that's not very nice to say, is it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You 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 have hurt me more than you can possibly imagine. You? You took away the last six months I could have had with my dad. No, 
Yes. No. Yes. You sucked up to him and you cut me out. It's not my fault that you didn't get his approval. I have given you endless approval and it doesn't fill you up because you're broken. I don't like you. I don't, I don't even care about you. I don't care. Have we cleared the air, huh? Feel good now? First of all, do you think they could come back from this at all? Little insight into my life and my relationship. I do think they can come back to this because I have had, I mean, obviously very different context, very different things said, but I've had a similar conversation where resentments have been simmering for a long, long time and it all comes to a head and you're screaming at each other and it's the ugliest things that you have ever felt about each other. And we did come back from it. And I, and to be honest, we've had more than one argument like that. But I don't think there was any question that we loved each other and wanted to be together. It's just that these resentments had to be aired out. I'm not sure Tom and Shiv have a mutual love for each other. I believe Tom when he says that he loves her. I don't know if Shiv is capable of that kind of love. That's literally what she call, he calls her out on, right? Yeah. Worst, I think, is when he tells her that she shouldn't be a mother. Once again, maybe an honest thing to say, but- Obviously not Especially, the thing. yeah, knowing what we know. Ouch. Exactly. I think I even out loud in my bedroom said, oh. <laughs> I like when she says, you betrayed me. And he's like, well, I was trying to protect myself from going to prison. <laughs> and you were willing to let me go. I mean, I am so on Tom's side for almost all of this conversation, honestly. <laughs> she is constantly rationalizing things that are true and maybe true in her mind. But like you said, I definitely take Tom's side on this. She says, you offered to go to jail. This is absolutely correct. He did offer to go to jail. But that scene, when they do that, she's like, oh, <laughs> okay. Like, yeah. That is not the response you want from your wife when you offer like, well, I'll take the bullet. Someone's got to take the bullet. I'll take the bullet. And she's like, okay, sounds good. Yeah. What <laughs> kind of person takes their spouse up on that offer? That solves everything. Terrific. Yes. Problem solved. <laughs> Even if you go back to that scene and you look at his face, he obviously wanted her to fight. No, Tom, no. We're thinking of starting a family. No, no. She's like, okay. Right. It means so Sounds much good. to me that you would do that for me and for this family, but I would never let you. Yes. Right. I do like how this start, how conversation starts off though, where she goes, explain to me the joke about the scorpion. <laughs> and she calls him a snake and goes, here's a snake tied to wear. I don't yes. I mean, that's the type of thing that usually triggers it when all those right. resentments Ace. have been simmering. <laughs> yes, yes. And then all of a sudden you're arguing about like the fundamental exactly. understanding you have of who the other person is. <laughs> yes. <Right. laughs> he calls her out initially. She's been walking around saying that they are going to fire Tom. And then her response to it is we were just joking, which of course would be her response for multiple other slights she's done to him, that it was just a joke or I was just playing along. I was just going along with my dad. I was just going along with my mm -hmm. brothers, right? The worst part about it is she she does feel bad about it. She doesn't really believe what she's saying, but she keeps doing it to him mm -hmm. over and over again. If you really take him at his word that she's he's seeing that particular behavior, for example, 
there, there isn't someone there that you want to be with. Once again, he would be better off without her. Like, and Jerry, finally, we see her walking away. Good. <laughs> Walk away. And that's what she's accusing him of, right? Is that you're just with me for my DNA. You're just climbing right. up the ladder. Shiv rubs me the wrong way a lot, even though I right. wish I could like her. I want to like her. And this way that she sees herself as like, oh, poor me, what will become of me? Comparing herself to right, Tom, right. being worried what will become of him. And it just right. like to put them in the same footing. It's like, that's how little self-awareness you have. Tom at least has some reason to worry what will become of him and has oh, yeah. to make these deals in order to survive in that world because he's come from the family he's come from and the culture right. he's come from. Shiv does not have to do any of those things right. as we've discussed as we've discussed a million times. Any day she could do what Jerry's doing and saying, I reached my limit, I'm out. But no, she's acting like she's fighting for her life. Right. right. Exactly. And like yeah. all in the name of like that power that she wants to have, because it's right. certainly not about anything more than that. Well, and proving yourself. She's blaming Tom. You took away the last six months with my dad. Right. This was so pointed. Right. And yes. mm -hmm. him telling her in my mind accurately, that's yes. not what happened here. That's you never right. got his approval. And I'm sorry about that, but I have nothing to do with it. You know, right. she's blaming this on him because of that betrayal. And that that's why they were alienated. It's like, you were alienated from your dad from the start. He's treated right. you like this your whole entire life. It's not now that it's happened. It's happened forever. To the other point you mentioned as well, she could fail at 10 things. She can start a new company and fail. She could buy mm -hmm. a new company and fail. She could get a role within the organization and fail. She could become a political analyst and fail. And 10 years from now, 15 years from now, she can write a tell-all book and she'll be like a, a celebrity. Like she doesn't, she can't fail. She can't fail. Yes, or, exactly. Or, or, or actually, you know, that's the privilege of money. If you don't have money, you can fail once and then your life is over. If you have money, you can fail infinitely <laughs> and you could just keep failing. It's a, you get, yeah, um, it can be a series of vanity projects. And a bailout when you really screw up. Yeah. So to me, her whole framing of like, oh my gosh, this is so dire for me. What will yeah. happen to me? Yeah. It just all really rubbed me the wrong way. Especially talking to Tom, where Tom has yes. literally multiple times, his like entire life is on the line, like going to jail, like ruining his mm -hmm. career. Because if he doesn't have this position here or he gets fired embarrassingly like that, he takes the blame for what happened. No one else is going to hire him after that. She could just make her own job after that. If, if that happened to her, it just everything here is stuff that we've said here on the podcast, by the way. And it's just all yes. out in the open now. And it feels like it's very hard for them to come back from this. But like you said, sometimes getting it all out is the only way to resolve it. But I, I can't imagine them getting back together at this point. My partner and I have said some very mean things to each other because <laughs> of whatever baggage we're carrying, but never something as mean as what was I supposed to say when you proposed to me after my dad was right. in the hospital? <laughs> yes. I mean, that, like you I said, said, we no, always as he says. had right. a fundamental understanding that we loved each other and wanted to be together. And I think that's really put in question, has always been in question, but now is finally being said out loud. Do they ever really want to be together? Did she ever really want to be with him to begin with? The fact that she's blaming him for, you asked me when I was at my most vulnerable, she said yes. After the dad got better, she went through with the marriage. Uh, after the marriage, you know, she fucked the phone book, as he says. She mm -hmm. like cheated on him and then hid it from him. If she wanted the marriage to end because of the cheating, then she should have flaunted it, but she didn't. Mm. She kept this thing going behind his back. It just went on and on. And yeah. And it's just like, she's always like, but that was your fault. That was my dad's fault. That was, it's just like, at what point is any of this your fault ever? Mm -hmm. you know? Which I think is a problem a lot of people face, by the way. I agree. 
Okay, last important scene here. Frank and Kendall meet, and he says, I need to talk to you just one-on-one. Frank gets very uncomfortable with Kendall's thinking. Kendall is thinking now. Here's an addict spiraling out of control. If Gojo is weak, why don't we buy Gojo? Now he wants everything. He wants Gojo, and then they'll be big enough to buy Pierce. They can own everything. It's the biggest Mm -hmm. business in the world. You think about the logistics of how much Gojo stock has to drop and Waystar's stock has to climb for this thing to even make sense. This is all ego. He just wants to get back at the insult he got from Lucas. That's exclusively what he's doing there. If you really thought this was a terrible idea, then just walk away from the deal, right? Like expose these numbers, walk away from the deal. Because now they've found they're out with these India numbers, right? They've found a legitimate basis for withdrawing from this whole thing. And now that's not good enough anymore. They can blackmail him. That one thing that he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. They just blackmail him and say, we're going to reveal the numbers if you don't walk away. Mm -hmm. Just walk away. They wanted him to pressure him to walk away. They have all the ammunition they Mm -hmm. need. But what about bigger? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, stop yourself. Stop. You can't run your company. You can't even run the studio and the TV network at the same time. Now you're going to become a technology company with like mm-hmm. platforms and stuff all over the world internationally. What are you talking about? You can't do what your dad did, you know, nine to five that you sat at his side. He only really ran the, the news corp. You can't do that. You're going to do this. It's yeah. such insanity. Such insanity. What if the business was four times bigger? <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Most importantly, in this conversation with Frank, to get Kendall to think a different way by saying, have you run this by your brother and sister? Remember, the decisions are delegated to the three of them. And now Kendall, who went along with this power sharing idea earlier, says, one head, one crown. So there's Kendall in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And this king is about to fall, fall very hard, in my opinion. The final moments of the show, Roman says he's going to take the eulogy. Everybody's kind of like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Just one more. I think that's going to pay off soon. So we have to call that out as well. But that pretty much wraps up the episode. I have a bunch of things that I want to circle back to and get your feelings on. But some basic things, first of all, one head, one crown. I mean, this really feels like he's about to take a big fall. If he undercuts his siblings as well, a lot of people know a lot of stuff about him. I just want to call out, by the way, in last week's episode, how hilarious it is that Kendall is saying in that room with the other executives that it's like, can we trust Lucas really? He openly mm-hmm. is a recreational drug user. I'm like, you are a, you are a known <laughs> drug addict. What are you talking about? And they look at him like he's got two heads. Yeah. <laughs> the lack of self-awareness that he has, this incredible hubris, he's not being political at all with people who can destroy his life tomorrow. And I, that has got to be part of this end game, don't you think? For a while, I was thinking in this episode that like Kendall has really hit his stride. He understands how to talk to people. He understands what people want to hear. He might not have the best head for business, but it's not bad in comparison to some of the other decisions we've seen people in this show make. Actually feeling like, wow, you know, maybe he's finally getting it together. And then in these last moments, you see that he's just getting carried away and it seems like the type of thing that is bound to blow up in his face in any number of ways. But isn't this the pattern of the show? Repeatedly, you see him winning. I'm going to walk away. And then he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to undermine my dad and maybe take the crown. 
and then he doesn't. And then I got to start something of my own, and then he doesn't. And what happens is that he gets that win. He gets a toehold, and then he just keeps going, oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I could have everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he usually self-destructs, right? It's like that. It's when he is within reach of his goal is when he oftentimes starts using again for just to name one thing. And I'm not 100% convinced that he's not using again because you know we have those moments where you see his siblings looking at him kind of mm, what's going on with him right now, especially when he was in Los Angeles last week. But that kind of manic phase that he's in may not be drugs that he's addicted to. It could be all of this. This is his addiction, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's mainlining it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. In the scenes for next week, interesting. Speaking of using information, we have this very strange analogy. Tom says, he tells Greg, information is like a bottle of wine. And you would think that, well, maybe the longer it ages, the more valuable it is. He says, no, when it's time to use it, you smash someone's face open with it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, not the wine bottle metaphor I was going with. but Really? (laughs) (laughs) But information may end up smashing someone in the face soon. All these people have skeletons in their closets, obviously. Absolutely. And of course, it's election night. And it sounds like things are, it's going to be a long night, as these elections have been recently. (laughs) Could be more than a night, right? We could imagine Mm -hmm. seeing... The funeral episode, like maybe the day after the election, and it's still dragging out. And, you know, like this, like, right. wouldn't be surprised to see that happening. I mean, elections are like a week now, not not a night anymore. Yeah. In the featurette at the end, multiple people mentioning the whole Virginia Woolf of it all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, the play. And I like the actress, I can't remember her name now, who plays Jerry, one of my, I mean, she's great. I should remember her name. I like how she's talking about the subtext of the conversation with Roman. I'm like, she says the subtext is fuck you. And I'm like, I don't think that was subtext anymore. Yes, it was right there on the surface. (laughs) I think you misunderstand subtext. (laughs) Okay, now some stray observations. First of all, this is a pretty minor one, but did you for a moment worry about Tom on that balcony? (laughs) No, I didn't. You thought he was going to be pushed? Generally, there are multiple times in this show where we see people at very high heights, like putting themselves into like precarity. I don't know. I just wonder, are they foreshadowing something like that? Or is it purely just like these people are high up and they have a long way to fall, right? Like, I mean, metaphorically, not physically. <laughs> Although physically too, maybe, who knows? I mean, I agree. They were doing something for a while with people being up on roofs. Yeah, um, right. Mm-hmm. So that's a fair point. I also thought it was interesting, complete tangent, that we found out that they live in a triplex, which I did not realize. I thought it was just, you know, a duplex. So um, (laughs) even more impressive apartment than I had originally envisioned. (laughs) Okay, some observations here. I find it very interesting thematically over and over again that we have these relationships between these men and these women explored and it seems like over and over again, maybe with the exception of Shiv, <clears throat> but I mean, in some context, I think that still holds, that these are these men who are using women as if the women are just supposed to be there to do what they're supposed to do. And why do they keep like getting in my way of like my own internal narrative? And you see this, of course, with Raya and Kendall early in the episode. Mm-hmm. You see it with Jerry and... Mm-hmm. Roman. Ro- Jerry, by the way, the last zing she gets on him, which is the thing that's probably going to haunt him the most, she really believed in him. I don't think she ever wanted yes. to have a sexual relationship with him, but yes. she really did think like, you have the goods. And she yes. tells him, I could have gotten you there. Yeah. But no, look at you now without me. You are a mess, right? Mm-hmm. And I think he knows that, right? And he knows mm-hmm. that he missed that. He's annoyed. She wasn't his punching bag the way he wanted her to be. 
Right. You see it with Ebba and Lucas. You see it with Shiv as well. I think Shiv is actually doing that to Tom. It's interesting not to use it in this. I mean, what was the show we watched? Uh, Fleischman is in trouble. Was yes, it a psychiatrist? So was like, yes. you're doing this to the wife. And he's like, oh, no, uh-huh. I never did that to her. And she's like, no, no, you're the wife. Yes. <laughs> Tom is very much the wife, but I feel like the brothers are telling Shiv, you go over there and do what I tell you to do. It's only like after she's in Madsen's pocket that they're going like, wait a second, what's going on over there? Because they're incapable of seeing her having her own ideas. She's just their prop or like just someone buzzing in the background. And I think all these men are doing that over and over again with the women in this show, especially exemplified in this episode. Is that possible that they are setting up the fact that there are things happening behind the scenes. We're focused on these guys. They're not seeing what's actually happening, right? Is, is that a possibility, you think? Maybe this will be a theme of what women do when they're pushed to a limit. Um, because yeah. Jerry now is saying, okay, you know, that's it. You treated me like crap one times too, too many. And I'm ex- exiting and it's on my own terms and it's going to cost you dearly. You know, Shiv pushed to a limit, has decided to betray her family for Matson, but she might right, exactly. backpedal on that. We don't know. Eva, who knows, right? She has a lot of information in her pocket too that she could decide. And <laughs> yes, and DNA. It's an interesting observation that you're making about men and women and how they react. And to me, it would be very interesting, um, although perhaps out of character with this show and what it has been. To, in the end, have the women be the ones that have all the power because they have put up with so much crap for so long and then yield that power to create their own future. That dovetails directly into the other theme I wanted to bring up here. Can you read this entire show? There was a certain type of narrative around being a business person that we grew up with, right, in the 80s Mm -hmm. and 90s, where it's like the whole idea that, you know, you have to kill your competition, you kill them and eat them. And it's like, and it was just idea that, well, of course, that's how it is. This is how capitalism works. Mm -hmm. And it was the foregone conclusion that this is exactly what you do. You literally, you know, they call them pirate capitalists or just acquiring and acquiring and acquiring and then, uh, you know, purging staff. And it was just this mentality of just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I worked for companies like that over my career that all went bankrupt, by the way. But at that time, mindset, (laughs) it was just like, you just keep acquiring businesses until you get huge. And then a lot of those businesses have failed. And culturally as well, we are now in a different place where there's more power sharing with employees. There's an expectation that things aren't going to run the way they did before. And there is not any role model for that new pattern of running a business. Like you do see like CEOs leaving who have reputations for being like very toxic and bullying and they're replaced by these nice guys and women oftentimes as well. Some of these companies have done well, some have not. But regardless, we don't even know these people's names anymore. It's not the kind mm-hmm, of corporate mm-hmm. personality that existed before. Is this show about what happens when this type of patriarchy capitalism goes away? And what happens? Like, is everybody just lost because they don't know what to do? <laughs> is that like mm-hmm, what is symbolically mm-hmm. happening here? And you have the Madsons of the world, right? You have like these tech bros that have come along and their companies are suddenly worth billions and billions of dollars. Here's a perfect example of it. They talk about AOL here, which made me think once again, do we remember even that AOL, AOL bought Time Warner. 
It was AOL Time Warner because mm-hmm. AOL was valued at this massive valuation. And then within like three or four years, AOL was gone mm-hmm. <laughs> and Warner Brothers survived. So like the brick and mortar, I have a library of movies. I have theme parks. I have IP. And everybody rolled their eyes at like boring Warner Brothers. They're still around. They've been around for over 100 years. <laughs> way over 100 years. AOL came and went, supposedly mm-hmm. owned them and AOL disappeared. They're worth nothing now. So it's uh, mm-hmm. anyway, is that a question of the Gojo versus old school media here? With that old system dying out, it becomes the Wild West. Right. Exactly. Nobody really knows what works and what doesn't work and who they're supposed to listen to and who should fall into line and who should be leading. It just becomes a, a free-for-all for everybody to try and grab their piece. Yeah. And I do wonder if we're in that bubble again where you know these tech companies become incredibly worth huge valuations. They probably need to buy like brick and mortar old school businesses to be able to say like, hey, look, we exist. <laughs> like you can physically touch something we made. But I do wonder if this is just not necessarily the future, but just a cycle. Like I mentioned, how many of these tech companies from the last tech bubble uh, you know, bought well-known businesses and they're all gone and those old school businesses are all still around. So maybe Logan knows something that you know his kids don't know. That's uh, some thoughts that went through my mind while I was watching this. And uh, mm-hmm. we have just three more episodes, three more. Very close to wow. the end here. Election night next week. It's going to be very exciting, I think. The funeral. It's going to be another great episode, I'm sure. How do you think this is going to go? Obviously, you can't go by the polling. Polling, you know, that could be a satire on the polling. The polling's actually, by the way, not that wrong, but um, it's been wrong in the margins in a way that has looked like they're much more wrong than they are. But that could be commentary here, right? Like you can be trailing by 4%. Look at Trump, right? Like trailed by more Mm -hmm. than 4%, lost by more than 4%. And uh, almost won that election. It was only a few hundred thousand votes in the right mm-hmm. places would have swung that election, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't go by that. But if you were going to bet right now, do you think it's going to be Jimenez winning or Lincoln? Is it not Jimenez, by the way? It could be Jimenez. Yeah, it could be Jimenez. <laughs> um, it's not going to be Mencken. But for the reason, not because of anything substantive that's happening, but for the reason that I feel like we would have seen that actor a little bit more before now if he was going to win. Does that make any sense? It could be heavy on him in the next three episodes, though. So It could be. What do you think? I don't know. I was about to say it almost feels like he has to win because they'll have to bring him back more. But I can imagine if this is a really contentious election, it would be the last three episodes, even if he loses. Because didn't we just yeah. see that where you know Trump was the story, even as he lost the election? <laughs> he was definitely the story more than, than Biden, who was just chilling and counting his votes. Speaking of, okay, in the trailer, we only see Mencken for a second interacting with Roman. What is up with that interaction? There's been a lot of speculation that there might be something sexual going on between them, or at least something like, sexual that hasn't been consummated yet. That's a little weird, their interaction in that trailer. I know it's just a second, but the way he touches him, I mean, Roman doesn't really like to be touched. What did did you think? (laughs) Um, It did not flag as anything strange for me when I saw it, but that's an interesting point. Yeah, it just seems a little too familiar. It's a little little odd for me. Hmm. And the last thing I wanted to bring up, of course, yeah, I wanted to touch on one more thing. What's your take on this? I feel like Everybody needs an escape valve. And they supposedly, all three of them, were like, we're going to take over dad's business. And I think this is what's interesting about what's happening here in this episode as well. Speaking of Mencken, I think that Roman needs Mencken to win. That's his way out of this, right? Shiv might be doubling down on her Matson. She might have to double down because he's going to be her only out here as well. 
But Kendall has no other outs, right? This is the only thing he has. And at the end, when he's like saying, I'm, you know, one head, one crown, he's kind of accepting that obviously it's what he wants, but it also makes me think about like, what else does he have? These other folks at least have some other potential exit. And uh, what does he have? He's got nothing. He's got nothing, right? You are correct in terms of what the show is showing us. In terms of like some sort of realistically speaking, as we've discussed many times and even today, he has the money to do whatever he wants to do. So he could pick up whatever vanity project. I'm starting a magazine like JFK Jr. did. I mean, magazines are kind of, well, not (laughs) of the moment, but you see what I'm saying. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They definitely have in practical terms, like to a regular human being. Right. You know, many if options, you have, every option. I mean, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, Shiv talking about how she is having an existential crisis that she feels like she's about to die because what? Because she's not going to be not a billionaire. She'll still be a billionaire. She's yeah. not going to be the captain of the ship. It's like, that is your existential crisis. Like, man, mm-hmm. like, uh, welcome to the world of all of us who have never been the captain of the ship, <laughs> which is like 99.999% of the population, by the way. So. Just trying to stay on the ship. <laughs> Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Just not try to drown, right? That's that's all we're trying. <laughs> I look forward to next week. And thank you for talking about all this with me. Thank you. By the way, we'll be, of course, many other things I'll probably be dropping. Those will be short episodes, I promise everybody. Short episodes <laughs> where I'm just breaking things down and just things that come to mind as I'm catching up on these shows, which are all wrapping up. My God, so many shows wrapping up by the end of the month. But a full episode with Sona Friday about... Yellow Jackets, which is also coming to its end of season as well. This is going to be a big episode of Yellow Jackets as well. So check that out later this week. Thank you again, Sona. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.